Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 6th. We do a lot of fun things with the format of this Mini Break podcast. When possible, we try to bring in guests to break down the biggest storylines going on in the game of tennis. Sometimes it's at the NCAA level. Last week, we had Andy Katz, obviously, amidst this coronavirus pandemic. We've had people like Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim, Steve. Weissman, Mark Lucero, so many fun guests. But sometimes this pod turns into a monologue, and that's what it's going to be today. We are up to so many different projects right now at Cracked Rackets, and you know we're trying to make the best of this situation. We're trying to come up with new content, different sorts of things that we think can keep you tennis fans out there entertained, provide you with the sort of distraction we all need at a time like this. And I came across some really interesting stuff in some of the research I was doing for one of our most recent projects now. If you are a longtime Cracked Rackets fan, you've been to our website, CrackedRackets.com, you'll know about the series, The Belt, that I wrote back in summer of 2017. And, you know, I think it still holds up fairly well, certainly all but the last part, but The Belt exploring the best American men's tennis player on any given, in any given year on tour. Uh, It's something I'm very proud of. I think it might have actually been the reason that Dalton returned my call. He read it and it was just fake. I sent him, overwhelmed him with words. It was like 2,500 words or something like that. It was what I was doing while I was waiting to start work after college. And he was like, you can produce 2,500 words on tennis. At the least, I'll return your phone call. Anyways, that series is about the best American men's tennis player in any given season. And we're turning that into a podcast. We're having a lot of fun with some narrative form podcasts. We've got a bunch of cool projects underway right now, that being one of them. Um, And I came across something when I was recording one of the parts that I found fascinating that I want to discuss today. The reason we are able to have these sort of discussions, though, day in, day out on this podcast, because of our friends at Diadem Sports. I'll get through it as, you know, painlessly as possible because you love to hear this. Diadem Sports, helping tennis players across the globe elevate their game by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. You know it by now. It's developed with your performance in mind. Each of their racks. It's carefully crafted for a specific type of playing style. Style You want to play big, explosive, you want to make some dents in your drywall as we're all volleying off of our walls inside, then you'll want the Nova 100, which will just leave those Nova heat-scorching marks after you blaze a forehand against the drywall. Or maybe you need to elevate your game, in which case the Elevate 98, perfect for you, for the precise, for the control. You don't want to break your wall. You just want to hit the same spot on the wall 10,000 times in a row. Well, then the Elevate 98s for you, and you can experiment with all of the different strings as well, the Elite XT, the Solstice Power, the Flash, the Evolution, the Impulse. Hopefully you're subscribed to our YouTube channel already. You see from time to time, I rock my Diadem hoodie. Super producer Daniel Westoff has mentioned that it's one of the only things I wear nowadays, and it's for two reasons. One, I'm not leaving the house, and two, yeah, it's really freaking comfortable, so why wouldn't I be wearing that hoodie all day long? And, you know, it's not just that. They've got this short sleeve sw- uh, shirts as well. They've got drawstring bags, all of your needs, premier tennis balls, your one-stop shop for tennis shopping. And you go to their website, diademsports.com. Use the promo code CR50, 50% off of your orders from their store. They do so much to help us. The least we can do is ask you listeners to go give them a look. And again, diademsports.com. The promo code is CR50. But a guy who certainly never needed a racket upgrade, although maybe if he got to play with a diadem racket back in those days, he would have just crushed everyone given the disparity in technology. 
But the topic of today's podcast is Jim Courier. And I know what you're thinking. Alex, you really love redheads, don't you? First it's Max Rothman, now it's Jim Courier. And in part, yes, that's true. I do have an affinity for those flame in the hair. Um, but I just think and we've grown so accustomed. Jim Courier has become a staple of TV analysis in, in the game of tennis, whether he's doing play-by-play calls, whether he's on the Tennis Channel set, something we always enjoy seeing. He's just a notable voice, a Davis Cup captain. And, you know, for people of my generation, I was born in 1995, and, you know, it's hard to go back and find that much of the 90s on tour, but there's been so much tennis that's transpired since then. I don't think I fully appreciate, because I knew he had won a couple of Grand Slams, but you think about his generation, and hint, hint, this is something we'll explore a lot in the Belt series, you obviously first think about Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, who culturally, you know, via what they accomplished, who via the, you know, just had a bigger impact, what they did for the sport, just achievement-wise, both guys won more Grand Slams. All of these different things. Um, even Michael Chang, who won the first slam, right? He was the youngest guy, and so that sort of sticks with you. You forget that the golden generation, it was more than four guys, but of course there were four heads of state, we'll refer to them as, the four horsemen. You know, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, and Michael Chang. And while I was looking through Courier stats, and again, this is a little bit of a sneak peek, but he's a guy who I think goes underappreciated because... There's a stretch from 1991 through 1993 where just unequivocally, he was the best player in all of tennis, and he reached number one in the world. He won, I think, all four of his Grand Slams between 1991 and 1993. So if you're saying to yourself, Alex, you know, no shit, like, yeah, I'm sorry you were born later. You're a prisoner of the moment. I remember thinking he was the best player in the world. I just feel like he's not appreciated enough. I don't think he gets the, the you know, his peak him at his best, and he was one of the first guys who made the match more physical. His forehand is atrocious. There's no denying that. It's aesthetically, it looks like mine, which is the not a compliment. Um, but it was devastatingly effective. He was great on the backhand, great on the run. One of those guys, if you don't know his backstory, he was another voluntary uh, trainee, a voluntary product. And he was always, of course, a little bit in the shadow of Andre Agassi. And, you know, of course, the standout moment in his career, that 1991 French Open final, where he actually beats Andre Agassi there. He, you know, Agassi had yet to win a Grand Slam by 19... Uh, yeah, no, he had yet to win a singles Grand Slam by 1991. Sampras had gotten his first, Chang had gotten his first. Agassi had been as high as number three in the world. But, you know, he had won Masters events, but he had made the... Three Finals, but he had never gotten over the finish line in his career until uh, that 1992 Wimbledon. And Courier steals that moment from him. He obviously beats him in the final in decisive fashion, or, you know, in a dramatic, I should say, five set fashion, but, you know, uh, 3 6 6 4, 2 6 6 1 6 4. And that was really good. And that, of course, was his first maybe breakthrough moment slam wise and you know looking back in history it's so easy to just reduce the history of tennis to well how many slams does that player have during that era but it's really the 1991 season where Jim Courier begins to stand alone and separate himself from the pack you know you look at his record that season excuse me 58 and 20 overall that's you know, we we've grown spoiled because we saw Djokovic put up seasons that were just incredible, right? He had what what is it? You look back in time, uh, I think it was that eighty two and what was he eighty two and six 
or something like that in 2015. I mean, just ridiculous. Uh, uh, excuse me, not 82 and six. He was 72 and five in 2015, 70, 11 in 2012, 64 and two in 2011. Oh, excuse me. No, I was looking at the outdoors. I was like, yeah, he was. That was, by the way, those are his outdoor win losses. That's ridiculous. But Djokovic, 82 and six in 2015, 70 and six in 2011, 75 and 12, 2012, 74 and nine, and he didn't even finish the year ranked number one in 2013. I mean, right? Those seasons just spoil us. Nadal certainly had seasons like that. We talked about them at length in our best of the decade podcasts. Um, but Jim Courier put together one of those special stretches in 2000 or in 1991 excuse me and you know you look at the overall stats three titles in five finals that's not incredible given that his record was 58 and 20 although i think he played 17 tournaments on the year not including davis cup so you take out uh the, I think he went one and three in davis cup so 57 and uh 17 sounds a little bit better but from indian wells on he went 50 and 13 in matches. That's exceptional. He won the Sunshine Double of Miami uh, of <clears throat> excuse me, Indian Wells and Miami back to back in those tournaments. You know, he had ridiculous wins. I, I believe in Indian Wells, he knocked off Andre Agassi in three sets in the round of 16. Emilio Sanchez, number eight at the time in the quarterfinals. Michael Stitch, then Guy Forget. He follows that up immediately. Another win over Forget, the beneficiary of some upsets as well, but knocks off David Wheaton in three sets after that. Struggled a little bit heading into the French Open, but from that French Open onwards, he goes French Open champion where he defends Edberg. He beats, uh, defends, he beats, excuse me, Edberg, Stitch, and obviously Agassi there in the final to take home his first major title. He makes the Wimbledon quarterfinals right after that Montreal semifinals where he loses to Corda. Cincy semifinals, he loses to Sampras. Indy semifinals, he loses to Sampras once again. Um, this time comes a little bit closer and then actually beats Sampras beats uh, Emilio Sanchez and beats Jimmy Connors to make the first U.S. Open final of his career where, yes, he loses in straight sets to Stefan Edberg, but still, that was really his first breakthrough moment, right, where he comes in and has it, uh, it raises himself, I think, at that point in the rankings. He got himself by the end of the 1991 season in a position to where he was number two in the world at the end of the year. That's the highest he had been at the time. And, you know, immediately you transition into 1992, and he starts the year just on fire. Uh, you know, he wins the Australian Open. He wins Tokyo. He wins Hong Kong. He wins Rome. He wins the French Open. He starts his season 45-5, and five, and, you know, with those five titles, he also made finals in San Fran where he lost to Chang in Brussels where he lost to Becker. You know, his loss, Indian Wells round of 16, Miami semifinals, not great, but, you know, he wins in Tokyo, wins in Hong Kong, wins in Rome, wins at the French Open. I know Tokyo and the Hong Kong titles were on hard court, but that's the sort of in-between Australian Open and French Open success that we only see from a guy like Rafa Nadal nowadays, from a guy like Novak Djokovic, who had started off undefeated, obviously, to start this 2020 season. Uh, but, 
you know, he won that French Open, and he only dropped one set along the way in that 45-5 and five stretch. He got wins over guys, you know, like Chang, like uh, Muster, Gore, like Goran Ivanisevic, like Albert Costa, Bragura, Gilbert, Krejcik. Uh, you know, he played exceptional tennis, and, you know, to win that Australian Open title, obviously, he ended up knocking off a bunch of great players, gets revenge over Stefan Edberg for that U.S. Open loss the year prior. Um, now, of course, you know, you look at the rest of the season, considering he went 69-18 and 18 overall, that means post-French Open, he went 24-13, and 13, which isn't great, you know, in terms of best seasons in tennis history, this isn't going to qualify for that. But it's certainly one of the best starts to any season you've ever seen. You know, McEnroe, 84, Djokovic, 11, Djokovic, 19. But this is, it's not quite that. But if you have a top 10 seasons of all-time conversation, certainly top 10 stretches of time, this is right up there. And, you know, it's not just that he ended up having this good stretch in 92. And we talk again about the slam success, which is what so often all of these things are reduced down to. Courier during this stretch, you know, you start with his title at the French Open in 91. From there, quarterfinals at Wimbledon, finals U.S. Open, Australian Open champ. He wins the French Open, as I mentioned, back-to-back in 92. Third-round Wimbledon, not great, but semifinals U.S. Open, wins Australia 93. Finals French Open, finals Wimbledon. Uh, that's as good of a 10-stretch slam as you're going to find from any player not named Sampras, Federer, you know, again, it, it's in those echelons. It's in that discussion. The difference is between Courier is he could only do it for three years. Those guys did it for seven, eight, nine, ten years. But this, again, the theme of today's discussion, this three-year run for Courier, uh, 91 through 93, uh, was just exceptional. You know, he makes the finals at the year-end championships two years in a row, two Indian Wells titles, a Miami title, two Rome titles during this time. He reaches career, uh, or he reaches number one for the first time in his career during the 92 season and actually ends the year as the number one player in the world and wins player of the season as well. Uh, and again, you look at that 93 season, in, uh, five titles, uh, was ranked number one at early portions of the year, defended his title in Australia, Australia, one Memphis, Indian Wells, Rome, and Indy. Two really good stretches from him to start the season. He goes 17-1, and wins Australia, wins Memphis, loses first round Philly, but wins Indian Wells. His second best stretch, he goes Hong Kong finals, Rome title, French Open final, Wimbledon final. That's a 22-3 and stretch. That's exceptional stuff, obviously, for uh, Jim Courier and you know the other records he got during that time. He was the youngest man in ATP history to reach all four Grand Slam finals. He did that by the age of 22. Guess what? That record still stands alone. Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, they they didn't do that. He was the simultaneous holder of the Australian Open and French Open titles from that French Open 91 title through that Australia 93 title. Guess what? Rafa's never done that. Djokovic has never done that. He was the holder of those two events for two years in a row. That's ridiculous. You go to the third and final thing, and I think this is equally important. Uh, You know, winner of Australian Open and French Open in the same calendar year. Laver, Vlander, and Djokovic are the only guys who does that. So you look at the starts to his seasons— 
they're as good as any player in history. And even his rivals during that time, 5-0 and against Agassiz, 7-4 and against Chang, 4-2 and against Edberg. You know, 0-2 against Lendl isn't great. They were both at the beginning of that stretch in 91. 1-4 against Becker. You want to hold that against him? Guess what? All four of his losses to Boris Becker on indoor carpet. You play a match against that Boris Becker serve. You play any match on an indoor carpet, tell me you're not going to lose uh, to the guy with the bigger serve. That's just carpet tennis for you. Now, the 2-7 and seven against Sampras isn't great, but I will point out he beat Sampras in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open 91. Sampras was coming off of the first slam title in his career in 90. And that was a blow. Now, of course, Sampras gets him back in the Wimbledon final in 93, and that's where things start to shift. But the theme of today's uh, podcast, that stretch, 91 to 93, from Jim Courier, as good as any player in ATP history outside of, you know, the best Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer seasons. And again, for Courier, 10 top 10 wins in 91, 10 top 10 wins in 92, 8 top 10 wins in 93. That's a better, you know, Agassi never had 8 or more top 10 wins in a uh, three-season stretch. He had 14 in 94, 12 in 99. Now, individually, of course, those are both higher, but, you know, 94 to 96, 14, 8, 7, 98 to 2000, 8, 12, 7. Those are fine, but, you know, Courier, 10, 10, 8. That's really, really good, and so uh, that's up there now again. Sampras went 10, 13, 13, 14, 13 from 92 to 97. That's why he's a slightly upper echelon. Fed, you know, 18, oh my God, this is just ridiculous. 10, 9, 18, 15, 19, 17, 7, 15, 16, 10, 16 uh, from 2002 to 2012. He also went 17, 15, and 14, and 15. 14 top 10 wins in 2017. That's ridiculous. The Nadal and Djokovic numbers are just scary. Djokovic had 20 plus top 10 wins from uh, 21, 24, 24 from 2011 to 2013. 31 top 10 wins in 2015. I mean, come on. Nadal, you know, 10 or more top 10 wins from every season between 2006 and 2013. That peaked with a 24 uh, top 10 win season in 2013. Those are the elite of the elite, but in that second tier of player, again, McEnroe has more uh, individual titles. That's true. Agassi has more individual titles. That's also true. But for that stretch, you could argue Jim Courier's ceiling is just as high as those guys. And maybe you want, you know, as as the non-Sampras and up category, as the non, sure, you know, you want to throw in Rod Laver. There are guys, see, I, let's look at only the open era because I, I'm not going to speak to before the open era. But in terms of guys, he has fewer titles than, you know, fewer than Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg. Well, again, during that stretch, 4-2 and two against Edberg. Uh, yeah, the 1-4 and four against Becker, fine. Uh, against Mats Wielander, he never played Wielander. Uh, you know, Lendl got eight Grand Slams from 84 to 90. Yeah, that, that was really good, and he was making a bunch of finals. But I think this stretch from Courier, can, in terms of best stretches, competes with all of them. And you want to—I guess the theme of this is you want to know why he's revered and valued as a tennis analyst, why he's just value, why everyone values his opinion. A, because he's brilliant. Um, but B, he's earned the stripes. He's earned the respect. He was that good. And I feel like he gets shorted in a lot of conversations about best American. You'll go, well, it was obviously Sampras or, you know, Connors, 
Agassi, McNair. I feel like those four are often the discussion themselves, and you know who else should join them in that discussion if you're making a five. Although I suppose if we're making a Mount Rushmore, that sort of does the job. Although what about our Thrash? And these are all guys we explore. That's fair. Our Thrash, for so many different reasons, belongs in that conversation, but was a hell of a tennis player as well. But based on merit, you know, just what you did on the court, I have a hard time saying. You're not going to put Courier ahead of Connors and McEnroe. You're just not. But in terms of, because McEnroe, the, or for Connors, it's the longevity argument. I'm well aware of that. But if you're going to say who's the number five, I don't know how you go with anyone besides Courier. You want to make a case for the Bryans? I can hear that case. The success they've had in doubles over two decades, uh, at a certain point, you just have to regard it for how extraordinary it is. Certainly, Courier's peak, yeah, Roddick had a little more longevity, but Courier's peak, I think, is is clearly better. Um, I don't know. You want to go further back in time? You want to tell me Stan Smith or Johan Creek? Like, sorry, I just disagree. Um, I mean, this guy could play. And I think, you know, no one wants to watch a Jim Curry match because to get to the point I said at the top, the forehand's ugly. The shorts are short. He's got freckles, um, which I would argue are quite endearing. Uh, But definitely a guy who's gotten better looking as he's gotten older. And that's not a diss. That's a compliment. Chris, shout out to you for saying, hey, I, I got, you know, my image is part of my brand now and cleaning that up. Respect real recognizes real. As soon as I do that, Dalton will let you know. Um, but, I mean, Jim Courier is just a fantastic tennis player. So shout out to him. Um, and, and, you know, again, we, this is all part of a piece we have coming out later on and CrackedRackets.com. Be on the lookout. It'll be a new podcast. It's sort of a synopsis from the belt but expanded on. Uh, and we're really excited for that Series 2 hit podcast form. That will certainly happen by the end of April at the latest. And again, if you've missed any of our content uh, on our YouTube channel, Super Producer Daniel Westoff can, can, continues to just kill it day in, day out uh, with his content. I mean, what is it? Where we've got Overserved, uh, which are look at all of the comedy that happens in the tennis world on a weekly basis. He recently uh, got published our first edition of CR Classics, where we look at some of the best matches in tennis history as a video to interlope uh, highlights of the matches we are talking about alongside of uh, our commentary. And it's a really cool series, so be sure to go check both of those out. If you want to see the interviews we do on the podcast in video form, uh, go check out, again, that YouTube channel. Hit subscribe. It's like three clicks, folks. It's so easy. Uh, As you know, uh, we've also got our other podcast, Rockin' and Rolling, Cracked Interviews. Who have we had on recently? Christian is later this week, but we've had Claire Liu and Dennis Kudla and Chris Woodruff, the current Tennessee coach, former ATP top 30 player, Bethany Maddox-Sands. Those have all been exceptional. I mentioned CR Classics. That's a GSP as well. We've also had John Wertheim, Tumani Carriol on that show. Uh, so really, we're, we're still rocking and rolling. And again, the reason we do that to provide all of you with any sort of distraction to help get through this time of self-quarantine. If you missed any of it, Go to the website, CrackedRackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's all there, and we're updating on a daily basis at Cracked Rackets. You need someone to help distract you during the day. Just shoot me a DM at GreatShotPod. Believe me, I can help you get your mind off of things because all I do is try to keep my mind off of the serious stuff I have to do. I did a 30-minute pod on Jim Courier instead of just recording the piece Westoff wanted because that's how I rock and roll, folks. But speaking of Westoff, shout-out to the super producers as always. 
Price, Daniel Westhoff, Max Fligner for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. It's easy to produce this. Uh, it's easy to create content, but it means nothing if you don't have someone who can polish it off the way they can. So shout out to those guys. Shout out to our friends at Diadem Sports. Again, go to their website, diademsports.com. Use that promo code CR50 for 50% off your order. Also check out our friends at Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar out there. Use the promo code CRACKED30 for 30% off of all of your purchases. But again, with that being said, more mini breaks. Be ready for Technique Tuesday tomorrow. We've got a full week slate, as we always do. But for now, for... My super producers, Max Ligner, Daniel Westhoff, for our friends at both Diadem Sports and Aerobarn, from all of us here at the both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks? That's the break. And we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.